Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of them many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The word of the Lord. We're finishing a series this morning called Public Faith. In our culture, uh, we say that there's a difference between what we call public facts and private values. Public facts are, are things that we think that we can know for certain. That would be things like science and reason. Private values, on the other hand, are things that we say, well, who can know for sure? Things like morality or God. In Western culture, we say that we should always keep public facts separate from private values. So, for instance, separation of church and state would be an example of that. And the reason we, we do that and believe that is because we say that public facts belong to what we think of as the real world. But um, things like morality and God and spirituality, that belongs to a less real world, or for many people, an unreal world. And so even if you believe in God, our culture trains us to see this division or separation between public facts and private values. We say those two worlds don't overlap, but that this world is the real world. Our, our culture trains us to think like that. We say that this world is separate from God's world. So that um, when we think about faith and spirituality, we think of it as being separate or private. But this world is the real world. So, for instance, C.S. Lewis once wrote a story about an atheist who used to like reading books in the British Museum. But one day, the thought of God crossed his mind. And there was this demon there whose job it was to keep the guy away from God. And so the demon had to think quickly. He said, oh no, what am I going to do now? What he did was he suggested to the guy, hey, you know what? This is much too important a topic to think about on an empty stomach. You better have lunch first, and then you can come back to this with a fresh mind. And so what the demon did was, as soon as he got the guy back out on the busy London city street, and the guy saw the newsboy shouting out the midday paper, and he saw the number 73 bus going by. In other words, as soon as he got a healthy dose of, of real life, all that stuff about God just faded away. In our minds... And in our experience, this world, the real world, is separate from God's world. 
We make a distinction between those things. Those two worlds never overlap. So when we do think about faith and spirituality, we tend to keep it private. And if faith does come into our private life, I mean our public life, um, we think that the only appropriate way is to focus on things that only make a difference in this world. Things like fighting injustice or ending poverty. And to be really clear, those things are incredibly important. We just spent the whole first half of this series looking at what it means to go public with your faith in the realm of justice. But we also spent the second half of this series looking at faith and evangelism. That means telling people about this other world, God's world, that, that's actually transforming this world through Jesus so this morning, we want to finish this series by asking the question, what would it look like to bring all of this together? In other words, what would it look like to live your faith publicly in such a way that this separation that we feel between God's world and this world, that, that those two worlds would come near and even become one world? What would that look like? And if you are exploring faith and spirituality, I would invite you this morning to listen in and to give yourself permission to ask the question, what would it be like if this were true? What if there's more to real life than just this life? This passage that we just read is a great place to find answers for those questions because it shows us three things about the church. Yes, the church. Let's look at this passage and see three things about the church. We're going to see what the church is, what the church does, and how the church does it, okay? What the church is, what it does, and how it does it. First, what the church is. Now, let's get a little backstory, because the very first verse says this, that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Now, what's going on here? Well, that's referring to the story that happened right before this passage, which is the story of Stephen, who was the first Christian to be executed for preaching the gospel in public. Now, as a result of that, what happened? It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, um, this is saying that there was a persecution and the churches were all scattered because of that. But here's the thing, the first big thing I really want us to notice this morning. Who exactly was being scattered and sent out into the world with the gospel? Notice that it's everyone except the apostles. In other words, it wasn't the ordained leaders. It wasn't the, um, the, the official leaders of the church that were going out into the world and doing ministry. It was everyone except them. It was, it was all of the church. In other words, it's you. And what were they doing when they went out into the world? It says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, this is kind of a misleading translation. Because when we hear the word preaching, we typically think of, you know, standing up in public and doing speaking, public speaking, like what I'm doing right now. But this word preaching is really the word evangelize, which simply means sharing good news. It just means that the good news about Jesus was a part of these Christians' everyday life. It was a part of their everyday speech. It was just a part of their ordinary everyday world. So Tim Keller, the great pastor in New York City, translates this verse. He says that they were gossiping the gospel. 
You know how gossip works, right? I mean, it, it just gets out there. It infiltrates everything. But this is a good kind of gossip. Now, here's what this means for us. John Stott was one of the most famous pastors um, in the 20th century. He was one of the greatest preachers in England and, and throughout the whole world in the 20th century. And John Stott always used to talk about something he called every member ministry. Every member ministry means that the church is not a handful of full-time clergy who are doing all of the ministry and then the church members like you, they're coming into the church and consuming the ministry. He said, no, the church is, is all of the members of the church, every member going out into the world and doing the ministry. They're not consuming the ministry, they're doing the ministry. You realize this pushes back hard on any kind of consumer mentality in the church. In other words, being a Christian doesn't mean that you come to church on Sundays and you get your spiritual goodies and then you just take those home with you so it, it only benefits you and your life. No. Being a Christian means that you come to church to get shaped by the presence of God, shaped by the story of the gospel, and then that makes you a vessel of the gospel that can go back out into the world and do the ministry of the church in the world. Because the Bible calls the church the temple of God. Now that doesn't really mean much to us modern people until you understand what a temple really is. You know, remember we said in the beginning that in our culture we make a distinction between physical reality and spiritual reality. There's this world and God's world. There's heaven and there's earth. And those two worlds never overlap. But in Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, there was no separation between those two things. Heaven and earth were one because earth was created to be a temple of God. A temple is the dwelling place of God on earth. That means that, that originally there was no division between those two things. Heaven and earth were one because earth was a, a temple for the presence of God. It was a place where spiritual reality and physical reality overlapped. For instance, um, the ancient people of Ireland, the Celts, uh, were people who were very aware of spiritual reality. In fact, they had a, a saying that said, heaven and earth are only three feet apart. They, they were people who believed that spiritual reality and physical reality were much nearer to each other than we normally think. In fact, they believed that there were some places where spiritual reality and physical reality came so near that the um, distance between those two things was what they called tissue paper thin. And they called those places thin places. There's a picture of one in Ireland. Thin places were places where spiritual reality and physical reality came so close to one another that the boundary between those two things disappeared. They overlapped with one another. Friends, the church is supposed to be the overlap of heaven and earth. It's a thin place for the presence of God in this world. Now, here's the thing. Right now, in our world, there is a separation of heaven and earth, of spiritual and physical reality. And the reason for that is because we rebelled against God. The very first human being said, God, we want to live life our own way. Leave us alone. And God said, okay, thy will be done. And as a result of that, heaven and earth were ripped apart. They were scattered. 
And, and our experience in this world today reflects the scattering, the fragmentation, the ripping apart of heaven and earth that occurred in the very beginning. But the promise of the Bible, the main promise of the whole storyline of the Bible is that one day God is not destroying this earth and carrying people away to heaven. He's renewing this earth by uniting it with heaven. The whole earth will be filled with the glory and the presence of God. It will be the union of heaven and earth. But until that day, the church is called to be the overlap, a thin place for the presence of God in this world. That's what our calling in this world is to be. And so as we think about that, you know, you realize that when we think about it, a lot of times sharing the gospel uh, feels like a burden or it feels like a rule that's imposed upon Christians. And if you um, don't obey the rule, then you're a bad Christian. But if you think about it, I mean, understanding what it means to be the church transforms that understanding. Because imagine you were on a hike with a friend. And you turn a corner and all of a sudden you see this breathtaking valley. Or a magnificent waterfall. What's the very first thing you're going to do without even thinking about it? You're going to say, wow, look at that. Why do you say that? Is it because there's a rule that says you must do that? No. It's because whenever you come into the presence of a beauty like that, your natural instinct and impulse is to praise it and to share that praise with other people. The wonderful Christian writer Madeline Lengel once put this perfectly. She said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all of their hearts to know the source of it. Friends, the church is meant to be an overlap, a thin place for the presence of God. It's not a consumer product. It's a, it's a place where the presence of God overlaps in this world. So that the church, really, it's like a Wi-Fi hotspot. Where God's beauty, God's love, God's joy, God's uh, power are present in this world. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen what the church is. But secondly, we want to see what the church does. Because here's the question. Okay, this sounds wonderful. But what does all of this mean for us, practically speaking? Well, fortunately, this passage also gives us a, a wonderful little case study in this guy named Philip. Um, Philip, in his ministry in Samaria, shows us that the church was doing three kinds of ministry. They were doing a ministry of word, of works, and of racial reconciliation. So let's walk through each one of these really briefly. First, there was a ministry of the word. When Philip... Uh, started his ministry. What was he doing? It says that he went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, there's a couple of things to notice about this. First of all, that word proclaimed really is the normal word for preaching. That means that, um, that Christianity has real content, real teaching. It has real doctrine. And you know, in our culture, it's fashionable to say, well, people get way too hung up on doctrine. We should, doctrine divides people. We should forget about doctrine. Doctrine doesn't matter. We should just focus on loving people and, and fighting against division. Now, here's the thing. I think we all agree that it's good to work against division and to love one another. 
But when we say doctrine doesn't matter, that's not getting rid of doctrine. That's simply substituting an alternative doctrine. To say doctrine doesn't matter, that is a doctrine because it's a truth claim about spiritual reality. That means that we can't avoid making truth claims about spiritual reality. Everybody has a doctrine. So that leads to the question, okay, what is it about the doctrine, this word that, that Philip was proclaiming to the Samaritans? The, the Samaritans well, what was Philip proclaiming to them? The Christ. Now notice, he's not proclaiming to them 12 principles for successful living. He's not proclaiming to them here are the rules that you must obey in order to get God's love in your life. Christian doctrine is not primarily good instructions or good advice about what you must do. Remember, it's good news about what Jesus has already done. That means it's not here are the rules you must obey or here are the spiritual practices for achieving divine consciousness. The gospel is not primarily about what you must do. It's primarily about what Jesus has already done. So first of all, we see that there's a ministry of the word here. But secondly, um, we see a ministry of, of works. Because yes, the gospel is primarily about what Jesus has done. But that doesn't get rid of the need for good works. It does change the role of good works. And here's what I mean. This is probably my favorite um, verse in this whole passage. It said that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now that, that word, paid attention, is a word that um, it means a laser focus on something. I mean, these folks were riveted to what Philip was saying. But why? It's because they saw the signs that he did. In other words, they wanted to know what he was saying when they saw what he was doing. And what was he doing? He was casting out demons. He was healing the paralyzed and the lame. And when the crowd saw that, they wanted to know, what does this mean? What is this all about? They wanted to know what he was saying when they saw what he was doing. Now, does this mean that we should be performing supernatural miracles in our time today? I'll be honest with you, I think we should be very open to that. This God is a God of wonders. And being a thin place for the presence of God in this world means being people. That, that, that God of wonders can work through you. But I would also say this, it doesn't mean we have to be doing supernatural miracles. Because think about it, casting out demons, that's fighting against evil and injustice. That means using spiritual authority to push back on the forces of darkness in this world. Things like racism and oppression and not just individual instances of those things. It means systemic evil as well. And secondly, when you know, uh, healing the paralyzed and the lame, that means bringing healing to people's bodies. It means caring for people's needs and not just their physical needs, but their social, relational, psychological, economic needs. You put all of this together, that means the church, when we do that, it's like a signpost pointing to the great healing that one day God is going to bring to this world. Because remember what we saw, that God's vision for this world is to renew this world by uniting it with heaven. That means a world made new, a place where there's no more war, 
racism, violence, oppression, addiction, loneliness, hatred. It's a world made new. When the church did these things, the church was pointing to that world through the works that they did in this world. That, that when the people saw the good works, they wanted to know what, what Philip was saying. The good works themselves made them hungry for the good word that explained the works that he was doing. So when we do these things, we're pointing to the ultimate reality that God is going to bring healing and renewal to this world. So that as we move out into this world, we actually practice doing these good works ourselves. Now, that leads to the third thing that we see here um, in this uh, in this passage, the church was not only doing a ministry of word and a ministry of works, but he was also doing a ministry of racial reconciliation. If you've been with us throughout this series, we've seen a number of passages that talk about the racial, ethnic, cultural, and religious hatred that existed between Jews and Samaritans. They hated one another. And yet, here comes Philip, a Jewish man who would have been trained and brought up all of his life to see Samaritans as racial and religious outsiders. To him, they would have been ceremonially unclean, which means he couldn't even touch them without be becoming unclean himself. And yet here comes Philip, and in order to cast out demons, in order to, to bring healing, that would have meant laying on of hands. It would have meant touching them. It would have meant embracing them. Can you imagine how amazed the Samaritans would have be been to see this? And can you imagine what would have needed to happen in Philip's heart in order for him to be able to do something like that? I mean, his heart had to be transformed by the gospel so that their hearts could be transformed by the gospel. One of my favorite illustrations of this is the story of John Perkins. Dr. John Perkins is, um, he is a minister, he's a writer, he's a social activist, he is a community developer. Um, he, he's one of the greatest Christian leaders uh, for racial reconciliation in the history of our country. But he didn't start out that way. When John Perkins first began his ministry in Mississippi, he saw his ministry as being only for his fellow African Americans. But then he was ambushed and nearly beaten to death by over a dozen white police officers. And you would think that something like that happening to him could have made him even more entrenched and more bitter towards white people. But instead, something happened to him. He says that, I saw their faces so twisted with hate. He said it was like looking at white-faced demons. But he said, I saw what hatred did to these people. These guys were poor. They saw themselves as failures. And the only way they knew to get a sense of self-worth was to beat someone like me. And when I saw that, I just couldn't hate them. I could only feel pity for them. And I prayed that day, God, if you will get me out of this jail alive, I want to preach a gospel that will heal them too. Friends, the gospel means that the church is an overlap. It's a thin place for the presence of God in this world. It's doing works of uh, a ministry of word, a ministry of works, a ministry of racial reconciliation. It means refusing to see this world as divided between social work and social justice and social distortions on the one hand and spiritual healing and spiritual renewal on the other hand. 
In fact, if I could bring all of this together, here's what this means for us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're exploring faith and spirituality for the first time, this passage is showing us one huge thing. We can't address the social distortions of our world without addressing the spiritual distortions of our lives. We think that those two things are separate, that spiritual reality and physical reality are divorced from one another, but the gospel brings those two things together. We can't address the social distortions of our world without addressing the spiritual distortions of our lives. That means the church is a thin place for the presence of God, addressing all of those things and doing so in such a way that, that we do it with joy and love and compassion and equanimity and a spirit of generosity. And that leads to our last point. We've seen what the church is, what the church does, but lastly, we need to look at how the church does it. One of the most amazing things to me about this passage is contrasting the end with the beginning of the story. At the very end of the story, what does it say is happening in the city of Samaria? It says, so there was much joy in that city. And notice that it doesn't say that it was only the Christian converts who were experiencing joy. It was everybody, the whole city, not just the Christians, but the whole city was experiencing joy because of the presence of the church in that city. That's what's happening here. Now, you know, when we started this church five years ago, one of the most important verses for us was Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, which says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And that was important to us because as a church, we want to ask the question, uh, how can this church prosper and, and flourish in such a way that means prospering and flourishing for the whole city around us? In other words, if this church, God forbid, were to disappear, would there be neighbors and people in this city who would say, you know what, I'm not sure I believe what they believe, but, but this city is a better place because they were here and losing them is a loss for us. The result of the presence of the church should always be joy in the city. But here's the question, how did it happen? How did it happen in this passage? If this story ends with joy in the city, how does it begin? Death. Execution. Suffering. Persecution. Scattering. Friends, the, 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 pre the presence of joy doesn't come into the city in spite of the suffering and the persecution. But because of those things, the only reason that the church and Philip were in the city of Samaria in the first place was because they were experiencing suffering and persecution. And the reason they experienced it was because they refused to keep the gospel private. They refused to accept that distinction between spiritual and physical reality. That distinction that our culture makes between public facts and private values. They said, no, the gospel is public truth and it belongs in public. So we refuse to keep it private. And you know, historically speaking, that's the reason that the early church transformed the ancient world. They utterly transformed the ancient Roman world. And it was because they refused to keep their faith private. But because of that, they experienced suffering and persecution. You know, one of the things that has fascinated me over the last couple of years as I've continued to study the history of the early church, I found out a couple of years ago that in the ancient world, the Roman world, the early church actually could have had official political protection 
if they had accepted an official designation or classification that was available to them, kind of like, you know, calling yourself a 501c3 or something like that. There was a classification available to any um, religious cult back then if they had accepted being called a private religious cult that was only concerned with individual spiritual salvation, they never would have experienced persecution. They never would have suffered. They never would have been scattered. But if they had done that, they never would have changed the ancient world. The reason that the joy could come into the world was because they refused to keep their faith private. But refusing to keep it private meant refusing protection. Friends, that's the pattern of the gospel. The joy comes into the world not in spite of the suffering and persecution, but through it. Do we want to see joy in the city? Do we want to see our city flourish and prosper? Do we want to see healing and renewal for the social distortions of our world? I think we all do, but how does that happen? I read a study recently um, about all the different places in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest and having the greatest impact. Um, you know where those places are? Not here in America. <laughs> you know why it's not here in America? According to the study, and it's a peer-reviewed academic study, according to the study, it's because American Christians have way too much political and cultural power. The, the study shows that the places in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest and having the most impact is in places that are marked by three things. First, there's way more uh, religious pluralism and diversity. Secondly, there's way less political protection for Christians. And thirdly, there's way more persecution against Christians. And I mean real persecution, things like prison and death. Do you want to see joy in the city? How does that happen? It means that we have to give up power and privilege. It means that we have to be scattered. It means scattering your money and your resources to people in places that need it the most. It means scattering your reputation by refusing to keep your faith private, but instead going public as a Christian. It means outing yourself as a Christian. And it means scattering your freedom to live however you want which is like the grand narrative in our culture. Everybody should be free to live however you want. It means scattering our freedom to do that, but instead um, being formed by a radically countercultural ethic that, that shows us um, to, to do things with sex, money, and power that our culture thinks is crazy. That, that's what it means. But if we do that, what's the result? Joy in the city. Friends, if we want to see joy in the city, it means that we must be scattered as well. The, the pattern of the gospel means that the joy doesn't come in spite of suffering and persecution, but through it. It doesn't come in spite of death, execution, and scattering, but because of those things. And it's precisely because of those things that the gospel has come into the world, because Jesus Christ is the greatest example of how God's love and power and joy come into the world through being scattered. Because when Jesus was hung on the cross, he was scattered. He was ripped to pieces. I mean, think about who Jesus is from all eternity. He is the God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity. But when he came to earth as a human being, you realize what happened? It's the overlap of physical and spiritual reality. Jesus Christ is the union of God and humanity. He's the union of heaven and earth. And yet on the cross, Jesus was ripped apart 
so that we could be reunited with God and physical and spiritual reality could be reunited in our lives. Friends, the cross, the, the crucifixion in the ancient world was easily the most excruciating, shameful, and degrading form of execution the world had ever seen. And the reason it was so shameful and degrading was precisely because it was so public. Jesus was scattered into pieces so that joy could come into our life. And the more that joy comes into your life, the more we're able to be publicly scattered so that joy could come into our city as well. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you and thank you this morning for the joy that you are pouring out into our lives and into our world through Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning, Lord God, that, that you would help us to allow ourselves in worship, not just here on Sundays, but through community with other Christians, Father, that we would um, find time in our lives for counter-formational practices that would shape us in God's presence, that would shape us in the story of the gospel, and so shape us into people who, who go out into the world as part of an every-member ministry. People who go out into the world as a community and overlap a thin place for, for your presence in this world, that we would be doing good works of, of word and works, racial reconciliation in this world, that the more people see the works we're doing, the more they want to know what is the source of this, what is the reason behind all of this, and that you would give us power uh, by your Holy Spirit to be able to share, to gossip that good news to the rest of the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.